are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, sponsored by Natural Stacks. If you're into biohacking, performance, and getting more out of life, this is the show for you. If you want more on building optimal performance, check out OptimalPerformance.com. You were looking for a way to change your life. You got it. I kind of think in some ways, selfishly, that it should remain a secret because it is such an advantage that I kind of want to keep to myself. Natural Stacks. Natural Stacks. Shout out to the guys over at Natural Stacks. Start optimizing your mental and physical performance. Optimize yourself. All right. Happy Thursday, all you optimal performers. Welcome to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Muncy, and if you're watching this on video, you see I am not in our normal sound studio. I'm actually in Austin, Texas this week, hanging out at Natural Stacks headquarters, and our guest, as always, is joining us via Skype, Mrs. Ashley Merriman, co-author of Top Dog. Ashley, thank you for hanging out with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, So for all of our listeners, we need to tell them who you are and, and why you're awesome, why we're so excited about this episode. Um, the book, like we mentioned, is is Top Dog. You co-wrote this with Poe Bronson, mm-hmm. um, The Science of Winning and Losing. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, competition and uh, optimal performance, right? So uh, this book, it was it was a New York Times bestseller for how many weeks? I lost count. Is that bad? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's great. That's Perfect answer. That's just on the list. Then I don't. Really, then I'm just like, yay! Yeah. And you guys have also been named uh, best book of 2015. So congratulations on all your success with that. Um, all right. So before we really dive into to our content today, um, I want to mention our, our fact of the day. We're going to kind of tailor this one to this specific episode. Um, in the book, Top Dog, you talked about a study performed on competitive dancers and that. Uh, on average, for these competitors, they'd been in 131 competitions. Yet, even after that many competitions, their stress response from the competition was equal to the stress response of a first or second parachute jump for people jumping out of an airplane. So, right. uh, you know, I, I just I find that fascinating, and I'm sure that, that that's something that that you obviously you spoke a lot about that in the book. But you know, let's talk a little bit about what what causes that. I mean, if I've done something 131 times, why am I still going to have the same stress response that I would jumping out of an airplane? Because competition is special. It's never the same twice. It's always new people, new circumstance. What is my opponent doing? What what's different in terms of how I got here, whether I'm talking about mood state or psychology or, oh gosh, it's dancing, you know, my shoe broke. Well, (laughs) catastrophe, your broken shoe, what do you do, right? Right. So it's always going to be new and you can't, and you can get excited by it. And that's important. And we can talk about later, how do we interpret the stress response, which is crucial. But if you've never jumped out of an airplane and they actually did this as an experiment in Germany where they had people who, had never gone and some of them did as many as three jumps within the span of an hour. And once they got over that first initial, Oh my gosh, the door's opening and I'm going to fall through space. It was pretty much the same every time. And they went, okay, well that's, they knew what they were afraid of. They'd gotten a direct exposure to that. And then they kept going. And the research actually is studied, you know, people who are regularly parachuting or doing other extreme sports and, 
the appeal is not the life risking, you know, oh my gosh, daring do. We all think that's what it is. But the appeal for them in the sort of constant risk-taking in extreme sports is controlling as much as possible of the environment as they can and then moving on. So you can't do that in competition, right? Because a lot of the deciding factors may have nothing to do with you, or at least they're not something you can control. And your, your job then is to respond in the moment. And how are you going to respond? It's not, and you can anticipate things going wrong. You can anticipate changes, but you're not necessarily going to control them. The only thing you can, as a friend of mine, Tom Chaby said, you know, in moments of chaos, the only thing you can do is control your response to it, not whether or not it happened in the first place. So how do we get better at controlling that response? Well, first, some of it is as simple as labeling it and interpreting it positively. So, I'm obsessed with challenge and threat and the biology that there's these psychological states that actually have biological consequences. And, you know, a challenge state is, you know, when you think you have the skills, resources, and ability to do it, and we can talk about that later, but just to get on track to your answer, those butterflies in your stomach, right, when you start a competition. Well, you can say, oh my gosh, I'm really nervous, I'm going to freak out. Or you can say, ooh, I've got butterflies, I'm kind of excited. And that interpretation of I'm excited actually helps you perform. And they've done research where they've now coached people. Jeremy Jameson did a study uh, with Harvard grad students where he told them, okay, during a practice GRE, right, they're, they're stressed out. They're Harvard undergrads trying to get to grad school, right? Right. And he said, now in the practice test, if you feel sort of arousal, well, reason. Research has found that stress can facilitate performance. So don't think because you're feeling some sort of tension that you're doing badly. Now, what he didn't mention is the recent research he was talking about was the study they were doing right then. Right. <laughs> but the people who heard that actually scored higher in the math and 65 points higher in the math section in the actual test because he told them, interpret that stress as a positive. And why that works is because you only get stressed about things you care about. You can't get stressed if it's not important. So other research at Harvard has found that the worst possible thing you can tell someone when they're nervous, well, what would you tell me if I called you and said, oh, I've got this big podcast interview and I'm all kind of nervous? What I, I think the, the default answer is just relax. Yeah, calm down. Right. Yeah. In, in Harvard studies, 90% of us would say calm down. Right. And that turns out to be the worst possible advice. Right. Has it ever worked? When you were upset, when you were nervous, and some yeah, that's, that's the last down. thing I want to hear. Yeah, well, you, you just get more either right. upset or angry or right. anxious. Right. And now you have two reasons to be upset, right? You were upset about the thing you were upset about, and now you get to be upset about the fact you can't calm down. That's what I told you to do. And that's and you're in the wrong. So what you need to do is channel these into more positive things, saying that this is engagement. You're looking forward to this. This is exciting. And then we can talk more about the challenge and moving into that threat. But, you know, not, you know, being excited is a positive. And the researchers actually, they sort of try and want to change the dialogue because we think of stress as a bad thing. So they actually try and they come up with, you know, distress, which we all know. And that's really what we mean by stress, right? Distress. Right. Um, so they actually use eustress right. to be a 
positive, excited, still stressful, still difficult, but on the positive side. Yeah. And, you know, our audience is a very competitive group. I mean, our, our overriding uh, theme is, you know, to live optimal. We, we are people who want the best out of, of everything we do. Um, so I think the, the things that you guys are, are talking about in the book and the, the stuff that you can bring to our episode today is, is very pertinent to, to the way we're trying to live our life. So um, you guys use examples of, um, like, I know you, you talked about the, the American relay swim team in the book where, like you said, that you stress that uh, yeah. being able to bring out the, the best, I, I, I can't remember the swimmer's name, but the guy who swam the anchor leg for the U S <laughs> so not only did he, did he do what needed to be done to win the race, but he swam a, a personal best by, you know, the numbers, but it was something astronomical. His time actually beat the world record. Right. You don't get the world record for doing the middle leg of a, of a relay. You only get it for the first leg, right. but yeah, he, he always does better in a team setting. And in that particular instance with the Beijing Olympics, everyone in the U S in the relay team knew they were going to have to do their lifetime personal best to win the gold at that event. Right. And if they didn't win the gold, that meant that Michael Phelps wasn't going to beat Mark Smith's record. And there was, and almost everyone in the pool had a gold medal, had a world record. So the expectations for everyone, not just the American team, but French and Australians was astronomical. And, but what I think is really interesting and, you know, as people walk away that thinking about Jason and they totally should. And he even came from behind mm-hmm. to do this amazing victory. But five of the eight teams beat the world record that day. Yeah. You, there, there was, there was a, cool, yeah, whoever came in fifth place broke the previous world record and they didn't even medal. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I think that's really important because to me it shows that, yes, they went home. They didn't win a medal, but I have to believe that whatever they thought was possible had been forever changed. Right. On the next day, they knew in a different pool, they could win the world record. They could do it because they had just done it. (laughs) The fact that other people were doing it with them doesn't diminish from the accomplishment. It probably facilitated it, right? Because all of them had to be at their very best. But in doing that, it inspired them and it changed their belief of what the best means. Well, and, you know, in, in thinking about a competition, and I, this is probably going to sound, it may even sound idiotic, but it was fairly well into the research about competition when I actually figured out what the benefit of competition is. It's not winning. Because we can talk for an hour, we can talk for a year. I, I can, without hyperbole, say, I wrote the book on competition. <laughs> I truly did, right? Right. But I can't guarantee you a win. If anything, I can guarantee the more you compete, the more you're going to lose because your competition got better. Mm-hmm. The people who didn't care, they dropped out. The people who are committed and passionate, they're staying in. So you may over time lose more than you actually win. So the benefit of competition can't be the win. What is it? It's, it's improvement. In the moment, like those swimmers in Beijing, and over time because over time – Yes, those ballroom dancers, they have the cortisol response, they have the stress response, but the guys who win figure out how to deal with that. So that's my question. If Let's, let's think about the, the average person, the, the, the average person who reads Top Dog or the average person listening to this podcast. 
in that situation, um, you know, it would be easy to wither and, and not rise to the moment and, and put out your, your best performance. Um, now I get what you're saying in the book where in that environment, when you're, like you said, you're around five other teams who believe that they can. And, and I know like when I travel and I'm around other like-minded people, if I go to a conference or, um, you know, it, I think performance is elevated when you're in that kind of an atmosphere where other people share that belief. And, you know, it's, it's, it's easier for you to believe because everybody else believes. So my question is, let's say you don't have the benefit of being around five teams of four people. So there's 20 people who believe they can set a world record. You know, if, if you're just going through your daily life on your own, how do you cultivate that belief and, and how do you rise to whatever challenge is in front of you? Well, you, you have to set goals that are based on yourself. So competition is valuable because it means you're looking to the person next to you and saying, is my goal high enough? Can I push myself further than I thought I would? And you may say, hey, they're actually not pushing as hard as I am. So maybe I'm on the right track. So maybe it's reaffirming you. But you're using people as reference points. Um, great competitors respect the opponent, respect what they're doing. Great competition is not about tearing people down. It's really important to understand that. You have to respect the institution of the competition so that it keeps going, right? So you have a bigger picture and you understand it takes a really long time to get good at something and that that's okay. So having then, going back to the benefit is improvement, what are the measurable skills? What are the things that you can on a day-to-day -day basis say, I improved? And then you keep moving that bar. But if you walk in knowing you're going to lose – you're not going to compete and you're not going to do your best, right? I mean, that would be ridiculous. Right. So at that point, you've got to change the goal and find, you know, well, what can you be successful at? What will you improve at? What will you learn at? So I think that that's, you know, a really important thing. And, and understanding, you know, ideally, yes, people are going to inspire you, but it's your personal best that is at stake. Whatever that is, that may be, you know, you're just starting out. I'm just starting out as, as a runner and I'm not going to compete against my, you know, the Olympians. I'm no idiot, but I'm trying to say, okay, here's how I improve and I'm sticking with it and I am improving on so, my schedule, not theirs. So, so I, that's really important. Yeah. If you don't mind, will you share with us some of the metrics that you use to, to make sure that you are progressing and, and how do you, how do you compete? I, I just have an app. And it's telling me how fast I'm going and, and my distance and pace. It's, and it's, just, it's as simple as trying to go a little bit faster, or a little bit farther every single time. And that's yes, it. Yes, exactly. Right. And, and, and I, I also had sort of, before I run, say, okay, am I going to try and go faster today? Or am I, gonna, or am I more focused on endurance and distance? But again, I, so I'm trying to practice what I preach, right. which is actually really hard because my standards – for what I want to do are really high and I don't like doing things I know I'm bad at. <laughs> right. so, I, I mean, it's true. It's just well, hard. I, I'm so, right there with you. And I think, I think most people are too. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm right there with you. And I think most people are too. Um, is that something that is, is that a personality thing? Are, are there, you know, are some people that way? Other people's not that way. Is that something that we learn? Um, 
in childhood if, if we grew up competing a lot? I do think that getting well, you know, I always have a hard time with these kinds of conversations. You know, the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I'm like, right. yeah, sometimes it kills you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Try, try and, that jumping out of your airplane with no parachute. Yeah. Some, yeah. Sometimes it doesn't work. And so I want to be careful when I say things like, oh, you know, I, I wrote an essay, you know, Lear, losing is good for you. And people are like, oh, so we should always have, you know, blood sport for even kids and I'm not about, I'm, I'm not about abusing children. I'm not about, you know, making people feel like failures. It's about that constant movement and progress and, and feeling that everything is an opportunity for growth, even a loss, even a success. You probably grow more from a loss than you do from a success because we don't take apart success in the same way. Right. And, but I think, yes, as parents, coaches, institutions, we have lip service. Oh yeah, failures of learning experience. Do you actually get to learn from it? Mm-hmm. You know, does you know if your boss says, "Oh, everyone should fail and learn from it," and then you make the wrong photocopy and you get fired? Well, how did you learn from that, right? <laughs> right. So, um, you know, or you make a mistake and you get cut from the team. You're going to learn life experience wise, but I want to make sure that we're consistent when we say things like. Mistakes are good. Failure is good. If you learn from it, that's all true, but we need that room to keep going. And I'm not convinced it's there. I, and to me, that's the kind of thing when you're asking, well, what makes someone more willing to try things that they suck at? I, I think that's the factor. Uh, you know, there's gender differences in terms of sort of risk aversion mm-hmm. and by and large women are really good at calculating their odds of success and guys are really good at ignoring them. <laughs> you, you guys, you talk a lot more about that in the book. Yeah. So people are interested. I mean, yeah. we, we have data on that. Yeah. That's not just me riffing. There's actual data. Right. But, but it's that question. Well, am I going to be good at this? Am I going to succeed? And if the answer is no, I, I don't even try. Right. And, and that's something that I actually, I wish women were a little more willing to say, I'm going to grow from this. I'm going to learn from this experience, whether or not the outcome is positive in that, in the actual right. box score. And I kind of occasionally wish guys would stop saying, yeah, I got this. So we can all learn from these let's, let's, strategies. Let's say somebody tries something and fails or, or they compete and they don't, finish as well as they would like to. What is the secret to finding the positive or, or, or deconstructing that so that you can learn and improve from it? Uh, well, we don't naturally take apart our successes. Like I just said, you know, even the expressions like don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Right. Right. But that's a problem. Like I'm, I love baseball and you know, in baseball superstitions, you have to wear the same socks the entire month of October because it might have been the socks, which is the reason that your favorite player right. caught the fly ball. Right. Or the, or the playoff beard. Yes, exactly. Right. And you do everything because you've never actually taken the time to figure out which is the thing that actually matters. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, granted, I, you know, I'll, I'll not change my socks if I think that's it. Uh, for a while, I was going to games, and I had a particular food that I ate at every home game, and we won every time I ate it. And the one time I experimented, 
Because yes. I'm a scientist. <laughs> right. I'm not a scientist, but you know, I'm a science reporter. And so I changed and we lost. So, <gasps> see? Who's your team? Causation. <laughs> who's, your, who's your team? <laughs> um, I root for three teams, actually the Washington Nationals, the San Francisco Giants, and the Padres. Okay. Grew up in San Diego, so you root for Padres. Okay. Um, Fair enough. So, but so anyway, I. Um, I'm just rambling at this point, but it, I, but I was laughing about the superstition. Yeah, I think the um, it's so it's easier to take apart your failures. I think the same process works though. The researchers talk about the difference between a counterfactual and you know are they sort of positive or negative, additive or subtractive. And here, so say I have a job interview and I'm late. So I don't get the job. They've hired someone else before I even got there. Now, it would be natural to say, oh, man, if I only had over, not overslept, I could have been at the interview and I might have gotten the job. Well, that's a counterfactual, right? That's saying, if I had done this, an outcome would have been different. But it's not very helpful in the future, is it? Because what it's doing is it's pretending that the one thing that did happen didn't actually happen. Right? So how does that help me get the next job interview? It doesn't. So the better thing to do is rather than subtracting the one thing that did happen, you add things that could have happened. Oh, okay. So if I had planned other ways to get to the job, then I wouldn't have been caught in traffic. So I could have maybe still gotten there on time. If I had planned what I was going to wear the night before, instead of freaking out, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to wear for my job interview and then took extra time, then maybe I would have gotten there on time. If I had set not just my alarm clock, but my phone, then I could have maybe actually gotten up on time. So now I have this universe of new options that are actually going to help me prepare the next time. And even this process actually starts teaching you how to think more creatively in other contexts. So the more you practice these positive counterfactuals, then you can also start doing it for the next time you're preparing for a race or a difficult call with a friend or something like that. So it's remembering that problem solving is coming up with new options, not just ruling out the one thing that actually happened. Gotcha. Gotcha. In the as a former athlete myself and, and as a gym owner and a strength coach, I mean, we, we call that looking for the gaps. So you know, where do you want to be? Where are you now? And how do we close that gap? So, um, and, and a lot of that, you know, I have experience in lean factory manufacturing too, and they're always looking at that rapid continuous improvement too. So it's, you know, how do we, how do we make this more efficient? How do we, you know, not lose, uh, how do we cut down on waste? How do we not lose time or, or lose labor, things like that? So, um, like you said, taking those lessons and, and applying them to other areas and other aspects of your life can have huge benefits. And, you know, if you become just, it's finding those little ways to compete in every, every little thing, even things that aren't necessarily competitive. Um, so, well, I, you know, I'll, I want to push back on that a little bit because okay. a great competitor knows when to compete and when it doesn't matter. Right. It's not just about being constantly competitive at everything because that's exhausting. If it's not exhausting for you, the competitor and the maladaptive hyper competitive person is just as killer (laughs) for finding a parking space at the mall (laughs) as they are to get a promotion. Right. 
So you have to pick and choose what things actually matter. Well, and that goes back to, like you said earlier, like respecting the game, respecting your competition. Yes, and and they're and, all yeah, Again, like knowing what is important and what isn't. Right, but, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, well, I want to shift gears just a little bit. You sure. uh, you, you posted something on, on the, the Facebook page that you guys have where you shared uh, an article from ESPN where it talked about um, youth specialization uh, being a disservice to kids. Um, again, as, as, senior as, that piece, I think, or, or he was interviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, as, a, as a strength coach, I mean, that's something that we talk a lot about where, you know, I think we're, we're in this, in the, on the same side of that argument as you guys are. So, um, why is that a disservice to kids? Early specialization? Yes. Oh, so many reasons. Um, David Epstein, the author of Sports Gene, has written a lot about this. So definitely check out his work as well. Um, but for one thing, you know, sheer fatigue, muscle development, kids need actual time to be able to develop one set of muscles versus another, one set of motor skills versus another. And if they're just constantly doing the same thing, I mean, the researchers are finding that you know, baseball pitchers are getting Tommy John surgery earlier and earlier and earlier. They're wearing out their elbows before they're even out of high school. Uh, some of them are even doing it prophylactically. Oh, just give me the surgery now so I don't have to blow out my elbow later. It's like, well, no, actually just take a couple months off and rest or do something else. Um, I also think that early specialization in terms of the, remember I said it takes a long time to get good at something? Right. If you're constantly doing one thing, then you're not really accepting the fact that it can take a long time to get good at something because you're expecting these constant results in a particular context. Um, I think other research also indicates that learning one set of skills in terms of strategy, responding to stress, responding to opponents, those seem to, at least in some level, be transferable skills. So you're still learning how to compete in lacrosse by taking, you know, a season off and doing soccer or baseball, because you're still in that moment of engagement and attention and creative problem solving. And again, remember I just said learning in one context helps you figure it out in something else. But if you only have that sort of one note approach, this is how we do this in this sport. How are you going to even be able to break out of that that mold because you haven't seen any other different ideas. So I think it also helps in terms of the mental approach and the strategy. I also just really, you know, uh, you're supposed to spend about 30% of your time in recovery. And if you don't burnout, physical injury, exhaustion, the list goes on. So to me, I don't see any upside and I see tons of downside. Gotcha. So, uh, and remember, Johnny Football, the same year he got drafted in football, also got drafted by an MLB team. Yeah, yeah. Um, so all of the great, a lot of the great athletes, even currently today, are set, are all multi-sport athletes and have no problem with it, right? Right, right. So does that pattern of taking time off um, or maybe switching gears, does that apply to adults as well? I think so. I mean, there's less research in terms of, the actual physical, although I just mentioned recovery, is really important. And if you're always playing the same sport, you're not recovering. And you know, in strength and conditioning, you don't do the same reps every day, right? right. You switch back and forth. That's what you're doing. You're giving one part of your body rest and pushing mm-hmm. another. Um, and in terms of cognition, 
researchers in the creativity research have found that engineers who watch a documentary on the history of China have more interesting engineering insights for two weeks after watching something that had nothing to do with what they were working on. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to see um, Stephen Kotler and and some of his colleagues speak on the flow state. And and the way that the brain works there is that it does, it goes through phases and you have this, this kind of accrual of information and it's almost like a struggle phase. And the brain actually needs a break and time to process and assimilate that information before you can actually enter the flow state. So uh, if your brain never actually gets away from it, if you don't get that space, then you cannot actually enter the flow state. So, so yeah, from a cognitive standpoint, I mean, that's, that's absolutely perfect. It's why babies sleep all the time because they process what they've learned in sleep. And, you know, a baby, all they do is, <laughs> wow, did you see what I just did? That was incredible. I got to take a nap. <laughs> right the more you learn the more you need to sleep that's true for adults too so in terms of that recovery and time to process and you know everybody said all of the research says things like taking a walk pulling yourself away from something is important and you know there are different studies in terms of you know that you get extra benefit from being in nature or something like that but that willful i'm stopping for a moment and just thinking about it, and but that's important. It has to be willful, right? You know, the I'm distracted because I got a text, <laughs> right? Does not help clear your mind. What you have to right. do is you have to choose. I'm going to stop working for a little bit, go take a walk, maybe check Facebook, and then come back to the problem because right. your brain is still working on it, even though you're not cognitively. That sort of forcing yourself to switch. Here's the text. Here's this. Here's that. Does that does not lead to insight? Right. There, there's a difference between space and distraction. Yes, there is. Okay. So I want to go back to something you said earlier, where where you were talking about, you know, uh, maybe not that you're you're advocating losing, um, but that it can help you learn, um, and that we should compete. Um, well, maybe. I am advocating losing in the fact that I hate everybody gets a trophy programs for younger kids, <laughs> right? Really, I, I, I really hate this. <laughs> right. And so in that way, you could say, yes, I am. I wrote an essay that was titled Losing is Good for You. Uh, what I mean is we don't necessarily need to orchestrate experiences of failure. It's about how we respond to the ones that are inevitably going to happen. And people do that. Parents have asked me, oh, should I intentionally enroll my child in something I know they're not good at so they will experience failure? Like, they're a kid. They're going to screw up. They don't right. need to manipulate the situation. It's how we respond to the loss and the failure that's important. Well, I want to I know if you feel like that same approach applies in the business realm, um, you know, for like an entrepreneur or, or things like that. So, uh, you know, billionaire Peter Thiel would disagree. You know, he thinks that, um, you know, it, it, that it wears in the behaviors that, that lead to failure in the first place. So... Uh, what do you, the, where do you, is it where, what, what leads to failure? Uh, the, you know, like if it, it's almost like learned behavior, like if you, if you fail or if you lose and, and I mean, let's look at, you know, realistically in, in a business sense, you know, you, you're not just losing in a competition, you may be losing capital or, or other things. So, um, where do you think, what, what are the upsides and the downsides to maybe competing in, in that realm before your proverbial 10,000 hours? Oh, well, I'm not a big fan of 10,000 hours. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, most sprinters are the best in the world right around 2,000 hours. Right. Um, 
and you know, you wrote about in Top Dog, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you don't get the medal because of who practiced more. Right. Well, that's why I threw 10,000 yeah. hours in there. I, yeah. I knew how you feel. Um, you were baiting me, and I took the bait. <laughs> the, um, you can definitely get into a mindset that you suck and that you can you know, do self-fulfilling prophecies. You can get to strategies. But I don't think that's inevitable. And I think that that shows a flaw in how you responded to the failure. You didn't learn from it. I mean, I mentor a lot of kids in, in, in the inner city and I always tell them, you know, first mistakes free, you got to learn from it. And when I get, when I get down on them is when they've screwed up and they've done the same thing twice because they didn't learn from it. Right. And one of my, my kids said, does that mean I just have to just make new mistakes all the time? And I said, well, yeah, actually that's exactly what it means. Make new ones. I'm cool with it. You right. just keep making the same one. You haven't learned. Right. So to me, I think that's a problem. If someone is repeatedly doing that, they're not changing their strategies. They're not thoughtful about what they're doing. And maybe they're even so afraid of, maybe they're afraid of success. Maybe they're doing that on purpose. I don't know. But why, why would I, I somebody success? I don't think failures breed failures inevitably. Okay. Um, in the brain, in terms of our response to mistakes, you, you actually can perceive the mistake before you even cognitively knew it, right? You just feel it was wrong before mm-hmm. you actually know what happened. Like, oh, right. uh, and sometimes we can actually perseverate on the mistake. You just keep repeating it over and over again. You can't get past it. But the more you do that, the less you learn from the mistake. So, if someone is doing that consistently, I think I, I think there's a, a different problem. It's not that they haven't, yeah, they're just not learning from the mistake. Gotcha. So I'll, and Vince Stone, the head of Twitter, I saw him speak a few months ago, and someone asked him, "What do you look for in a VC?" You know, so someone's coming in saying, "We want money," and he said, "I want someone burnished by failure." So that was a lovely line and pretty striking. So at least in the Silicon Valley, I think uh, a mixed track record it um, could be a, a good thing. Okay. Okay. So um, I want to ask you, you mentioned, you know, that, that people may not be, um, that people may be afraid of, of success, right? So uh, th- there's a, a really famous quote. Uh, I can't think of who said it right now or exactly how it goes, but it's something like, you know, our, our, our greatest fears, you know, not that we are unable to or inadequate that, you know, that we may actually reach that and that we may be afraid of what our true power really is. Um, why, why does that seem to be so prevalent? Like why? I mean, lying. I'm not really convinced. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but why would somebody be afraid of success? I've seen it as a Facebook and Twitter meme and I'm not really convinced by that. I think that most of us, just don't know how much power we have. And, and and it's not fear of it. I think we just don't realize it. Why would somebody be afraid to to try to discover how much they have or, or what they are capable of? I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's just sort of guessing. It's going to depend on the individual. I mean, it could be that they grew up, you know, making mistakes. They grew up in a non-supportive environment. Um, 
there's going to be a million different reasons why someone's that way. There are going to be cultural, economic differences. I, I can't say one particular thing. I, I just think the more important thing is challenging yourself to do more. Okay. All right. Um, and that, to me, is the value of that quote. What is that? The, the idea that you're supposed to challenge yourself and push yourself beyond yeah. what you've set as your own limitations. Right, right. So I do like the quote. Right. But... Just for a different interpretation. For a different reason, yeah. yeah. Okay. okay, cool. Um, so I guess knowing everything that you've said, what do you think would be more important, the, the joy of victory or, or that character-building defeat? If you want to stay in the game, you have to have both. I mean, the reality is if you're constantly losing, you give up. And, right. and who would blame you? Right. So you need to, and you, so you need to have the positive experience of winning to keep motivated, to keep being engaged. And you also need the defeats to not take that win for granted. Right. To keep pushing yourself. I was reading a study of uh, gold medal Olympians and they asked them and pretty much every one of them said the reason that they had won the gold at one Olympics was because either the last Olympics, they didn't even make the team. Or maybe it was a succession of games, depending on the sport. And, you know, it was a round robin or something, and they lost one of the earlier matches. And then they realized, oh, we're going to actually have to fight for this and earn this, which made them change their strategies, work much harder throughout the rest of the Olympics so that they could actually be successful. So I think you, you absolutely, I think you need both. Okay. If you're... And if you're lucky enough to win all the time, then again, setting your own goals and challenging yourself. But it's interesting. Some of this is also about timing and experience. So like the novice, no competition, no competition. If someone, I don't care if it's a six year old learning to kick a soccer ball for the first time. Um, So novices need time to learn how to get good at something. Whereas the elite, they're competing against themselves. They're trying to pursue excellence. So it's those people in the intermediate who really need competition because they're trying to figure out if they're good at something and how good are they and what do they need to improve. So for them, competition against others becomes more important for skill building than it is for the elite and for novices if you introduce competition too fast, they're just going to give up. And, you know, the difference between, you know, when do you give negative feedback or positive feedback, that positive feedback is more effective when you aren't committed. I'm just not really sure I want to do this. Oh, but you could be so good at this. Did you see how much you learned? Oh, well, okay, maybe I could try. And negative feedback is more effective when you are committed. Because that reminds you of the distance between where you are now and where you want to be. Okay. That's really cool. Now, so if somebody is a novice, how would we know when we are at that intermediate or ready to compete level? It's up to them. It's up to them. It's not up to you. It's up to them. Well, like if I was a novice. No, as a coach, you need to be... You know, asking them. No, no, no I'm saying like if, if I'm if I'm the competitor or if, if I'm the athlete, like mm-hmm. you know, right. if, if I'm a novice or. Well, I I think then you know you hear you'll hear about competitions, you'll hear about opportunities, and decide yeah I'm ready for that, or maybe you'll set a goal 
you know, I'm going to be in a race or I'm going to compete at this particular point in time. So here's what I need to do to get there. And you can always say, you know what? I realize this is harder than I thought. It's taking longer. I'm going to skip this one, go to the next. But, you know, it's that desire to compete. Um, I I don't think that's hard. I think that, you know, the, oh my gosh, I'm completely outclassed. What am I doing here? Well, there you go. Why? Yeah. And I think we have that all the time. So. Okay. Yeah. So in your book, you talked about two uh, polar types of personality, you know, the warrior and the warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, we're warrior and warrior. <laughs> Make sure I yeah. enunciate. <laughs> for to say, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I guess for, for a lot of people, and myself included, when I listen to the description of that, I, I kind of find myself at some times falling into each category. So um, tell our, our listeners a little bit about what each of those classification means, but also, you know, how, how does somebody know, I mean, can you be one in certain situations and another one in other situations? Are you, are we inherently both or, or neither either? How does that work? Well, what we were writing about is science in terms of a particular gene variant that changes how much dopamine you have in the prefrontal cortex, whether it's a baseline or in moments of stress. And the researchers have come up with this sort of warrior who is predisposed to having high levels of dopamine and under stress actually has too much. It's sort of like flooding a a car with gas. The engine just can't do it. So the warrior actually underperforms until moments of stress and then they get optimal dopamine and then they actually succeed better. But you know, if, if you want to talk about genotypes in an average population, it's about 25% of us have the warrior gene variant. Both of them, some have about 25% of the warrior, about 50% of us are in the middle and have one of both. So okay. certainly you can be. My goal is not to say, well, I'm a warrior, so you know, this is how I do things and write myself off. Or I'm a warrior and I get stressed, so this is, I can't do things. I don't want to pigeonhole people that way. Right. I want them to to use these as sort of tools to say, oh, you know, I do kind of flip out in moments of stress, so maybe I should prepare for that. Or, you know, where are my strengths? Where, you know, where are my weaknesses? And use that as sort of a way to test yourself in terms of your approaches. Maybe be a little more forgiving as a manager, especially for the warrior who was really great in practice and flipped out on game day. And you're like, what happened to you? Well... It would be, I think it would be a little easy to say, oh, well, they must have the comp gene variant that makes them a warrior. Yeah, they can't handle stress. Well, the research shows that the warriors who freak out over stress, over time, practicing in that particular context can actually get better. It doesn't change their genotype. Right. A right. new experience of stress in a new context, then they may freak out again. But it help, makes them you know, follow the stress inoculation model. So small exposure to stress over time. And then they kind of get used to it and then they become engaged. So that's, and, and especially if you're feeling like you're the warrior, the person who's overwhelmed with stress, pursuing that inoculation model rather than just saying, I can't handle it. So I should just not do it. Gotcha. 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 All right. Well, that about wraps up this episode. Before we let you go, a couple other things. Number one, Mm -hmm. where can our listeners get more of you? 
Um, well, I'm actuallymerryman.com. I have a Twitter, uh, which is also Actually Merriman. Okay. And there's a topdogbook.com website with some information about the book. Obviously, the book is everywhere, quote unquote. Yeah. And if, if people, but if people have questions or something, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Okay. Anytime. By Twitter or website? Twitter or the website. Okay. There's an email. Go straight cool. to me. Cool. All right. So last question. Everybody on the show has to answer this. What are uh-huh. your three top tips for our listeners to live optimal? Well, we didn't actually get to go into the real science of challenge and threat, okay. but in terms of how to approach things, everything should be an opportunity for growth. Doesn't mean you're going to succeed when I said earlier, you don't have to win the box score, but how are you going to learn from this experience? If you know going in how you're going to learn, then that event is going to be successful. So go for it. Um, get enough sleep because no one gets enough sleep and it sleep affects cognitive ability. It it affects testosterone, which affects muscle development, everything. So, and if you're, if you're not sure you get enough sleep, Here's the simple question. Do you want to answer? Are you brave? Okay. Do you use an alarm clock? I do. You are sleep deprived. I would that, that I is, would have told is. you that. You didn't need to ask me. I would have told you. <laughs> <laughs> but if anybody out there is wondering, well, I think I get enough sleep. If you use an alarm clock and don't be telling me, oh, well, I wake up right before my alarm. No, 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 no. If you use an alarm clock, you are sleep deprived. If you had enough sleep, you would wake up on your own. Okay. It's physically impossible to get sleep when you don't need it. Um, and my one more tip. Hmm. Well, I, I talked a little bit and I'm, and we wrote a lot in the book about the difference between playing to win and playing not to lose. Okay. And playing to win is about what's the good that's going to come from a success. And thinking of the big picture and being willing to take the risks. And playing not to lose is about preventing mistakes. And it's not even about a win and the good outcome. It's more pushing a loss down the road. You know, like, well, I, I, I didn't lose today, but tomorrow I might. And the reality is we do both, right? And I want people to do both. I want my engineer not to just play to win and say, oh, the bridge looks beautiful. No, I want them to master every mistake and make sure that my, you know, all the bolts are in the right places. Right. Uh, but it's about timing. So I want people to choose to play a win and use that, to, you know, that mindset for being an entrepreneur, being for that, for the vision of what you want. And then at a certain point, playing not to lose is about fulfillment. You know, I want your product to be safe. I want you to do the things that you committed to do and not let people down. But it's a conscious choice. It's not just a switch that's somewhere along the way. Oh, my gosh, I've come so far and I just don't want to screw up now. That was playing to win and now you're playing not to lose. So to me, having that vision of what do you want to achieve something and going for it and taking the risk, do that as much as you can and then only play not to lose just to make sure that it's all right when you're moving forward. Okay. Awesome. Those are great tips. Thank you so much, Ashley. (laughs) Um, 
So, like I said, th- this is the end of our show. Um, before we let our listeners go, uh, we want to remind all of our listeners that you can find the show notes on OptimalPerformance.com. For this particular episode, it'll be OptimalPerformance.com slash top dog. Um, and also, make sure that you go to iTunes and leave us a review, and we will read them on the air. Uh, we got a really cool one um, about a week ago. Great podcast, lots of useful information. I'm always looking for ways to improve myself, both mentally and physically, and I can say thanks to all the valuable information I've been able to surpass what I thought were my limits. So thanks again for what you guys do. Uh, Limits shattered. Um, So again, if you're enjoying the podcast, head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review just like that one, and let us know how we're helping you guys. Um, And until next Thursday, that's it. We'll see you guys soon. for a way to change your life. You got it.